if you think that the hatred of the second amendment is intense guns are worthless now you can't overthrow the government and even if you could that would be bad too so like nobody needs these things they do nothing but ill they're evil we should just get rid of them if you think the hatred for the second amendment is bad wait until people figure out that what we're going to be talking about for the next you know five to ten years is a second amendment for compute americans need and have a natural right to the free use of our most powerful digital technologies to freely associate and to create commercial and cultural value, period. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma, and I'm here with another solo episode, and this one was really for the best. Uh, even if Nick could make it today, uh, we thought it'd be prudent that he doesn't, because I had on today uh, one of the most interesting uh, but uh, uh, galaxy brain figures in American life, one would say. We had on today the great James Poulos. Before I get to what he's all about, as always, make sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything we have cooking, back uh, back episodes of this podcast, the events that we're hosting, and more. Uh, it's always a good time, and uh, there's always new stuff that we have cooking. Be sure to rate and review this podcast. Five stars really helps us in the rankings, um, and it makes it so that we can more conscionably bring all these fantastic guests to you. Today we had on James Poulos, who we've been trying to have on for some time now, but he's always just teleporting into DC and teleporting out. He's never here for very long, but he was here for quite some time uh, this last week. And so we got to sit down with him and tape an episode, uh, I guess, putatively about his book, Human Forever, but really about, about him, the man. And I'll put my cards on the table here. I think that if there is one person at the intersection of cultural, political, philosophical life that is likely to be read positively in 100 years that I know of today, it's James. Uh, it's sort of an asymmetric bet. Um, again, th there can only be one, maybe two people alive today that will carry that distinction at some point. My um, bet's on James. And so that's why I'm a proud owner of his book, Human Forever. And for those of you in the know, this is one of only 100 copies of the hardcover. Um, spent some of that uh, that line go up Bitcoin in order to get it. And uh, uh, James makes no sense. <laughs> he is exceptionally erudite and brilliant. Uh, but I know that a lot of the concepts that he talks about are often a little bit difficult to wrap your head around. And that's partially why we did this podcast episode. I don't know that we completely succeeded, but you're in for a, a very interesting, a biographical account of James Poulos. He's probably the most interesting person employed by any think tank in America, and it's not close. Um, but also his understanding of the the spiritual war that we are in with technology and how one can stay human forever. I highly recommend you guys listen through. Uh, it was a treat to tape with him. Uh, and thank you guys for listening. As always, we'll go now to James Poulos. James, thank you for coming on the podcast. Sir, I'm good to be here. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today. I'm very excited, been excited to do this episode for probably six months now. Uh, but first, I think it is helpful and illustrative for people to know uh, where you came from. How did you end up being the Dr. James Poulos of notoriety and fame that you are today? Walk us through that trajectory from when you were a babe. Where 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 where'd you grow up? Where'd you, where'd you come from? Well, when a man and woman love each other very much. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> in my case, it was uh, a suburb of Detroit, Michigan. Mm -hmm. 
uh, in the year Julian Assange calls year zero, mm -hmm. 1979. Okay. Um, <clears throat> which, uh, you know, by, by law, I had to be a Smashing Pumpkins fan, I think is, is the way that it worked. Um, and I checked that box uh, for many years. Uh, born outside Detroit, uh, the family exited uh, the area um, when I was about four years old. I distinctly remember uh, forming my hatred of cold weather uh, the, the day of moving out, just sort of stuck to the window watching, uh, watching the movers sort of pile everything into the house, vacate the house. Uh, I was very sad uh, the night before. I was going around saying goodbye to every room in the house and then goodbye to all of my belongings. And my, my parents had to um, informed me that the stuff was coming with me. Um, so that was, that was a nice constellation, but it was still very cold. It was about zero degrees. Um, the movers took the, uh, the Rocky mountain route and we took the southerly route through Texas, uh, a very long drive. Um, it seemed even longer, uh, when you're, you know, that size. Um, and when we arrived, uh, and met up again in, uh, the San Francisco Bay area before it became what we know, uh, it to be today. Uh, the, they, we discovered they had lashed the mattresses to the back of the moving vans and driven through the Rockies in the snow. Mm -hmm. So, um, my father was dismayed, uh, <laughs> and, uh, for, you know, the first of, of many occasions, um, he, uh, he gave, uh, the, uh, the transgressors a piece of his mind. Um, and so as I grew up, uh, I learned that, um, it was more or less impossible for me to win an argument, uh, and with uh, with the heated uh, passions involved, um, and so I found myself flowing into other channels, um, creative ones, as well as sort of um, you know how to how to reason your way out from under someone's uh, someone's frustration, and um, and I guess those two things uh, gradually merged together. It was difficult for a number of years. You know, I was I was too. I don't know, artsy for the smart kids and too smart for the artsy kids. And, uh, and it was the nineties and, you know, there was like a hard fork. It was like, you wear green corduroys from the thrift store and you chain smoke cigarettes behind, you know, the, the portables and <laughs> you're by, or you, you know, you do act deck and you are valedictorian. Um, and neither of those really, really did it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, and it took some time to uh, to 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 realize uh, that the the cultural and artistic figures who I admired the most um, and who I wanted to imitate in in certain ways uh, were the end of an era um, and uh, and the the hope of sort of taking your place in that parade uh, was one that was just going to be dashed for a whole generation. Um, you know, there was no sort of like, um, there was no path anymore to being a, a well-paid, high-concept, creative figure influencing the culture the way that there was at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for creative millennials of a certain stripe, you know, in, in and around LA, especially um, New York, uh, the, their sort of moment of hitting the wall was, you know, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but you're white. So you're not going to really work <laughs> for at least a year and, and possibly more. Um, but in my case, it didn't have to do with, with race or, um, or class or gender. Um, it had to do with, uh, with the, 
this sort of moment of exhaustion that came around the millennium, uh, where it appeared that the rising generations simply didn't know how to do things like write real novels or make concept records. I know there are always exceptions. People are, oh, but Godspeed you, Black Emperor, whatever. You know, like, <laughs> I know there are exceptions. And is this from the vantage point of a of a millennial, a Gen Xer? What do you what do you identify? Well, seventy nine is Xennial. So <laughs> so once again So made up I'm, work. I'm a okay, man great. Without a country. Uh that's right. Um and so uh so I tried I tried the novelist thing and um uh, convinced Brett Easton Ellis to read my manuscript. It was, you know, it fit in a Kinko's by a ream of paper. Um, and we were sending manuscript copies back and forth and he was like editing them. And, uh, and then 9-11 happened and sort of destroyed the conceit of my novel, which was about rock stars and terrorists. Oh, Osama dear. bin Laden was like on, on page 35. And, oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly it was like, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to make this work yeah. anymore. Nobody knew it was going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was 9-11 and then it was anthrax. And it was just like, you couldn't really do that anymore. Um, until further notice. Uh, and, uh, and so I went to law school, um, foolishly, you know, um, moped around the house, uh, self-medicated by writing songs, which was something I'd been doing for, <laughs> for a number of years. Um, and, uh, the, the day finally comes when I get the knock on the door from the like type a upstairs neighbor who I was warned not to block in, in the driveway. Um, and, uh, you know, I think she was about 30, 32 at the time. Knock, 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 answer the door. And, uh, she goes, was that you? And I was like, I'm really sorry. Like I, it's been a bad week. You know, I, I think I might not want to go to law school anymore, but I'm not allowed to quit because that would bring, you know, disgrace upon myself and my family. <laughs> um, and she goes, no, 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 I don't, you know, I don't care about that. Like, was that you like, like playing and singing? And I'm like, well, yes, you know, again, I'm sorry if I was loud. And she's like, I sat on your doorstep for five minutes. I don't do that. And I'm like, where is this going? She goes, do you know who I am? And I go, yeah, you're the, you know, you're the, the, the lady upstairs. So I'm not supposed to like piss off basically. Uh, and she goes, no, 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 like I'm the music director of Rolling Stone. And I'm like, okay. She's like, who are you working with? I was like, I don't understand the question. <laughs> And so uh, w by the end of the week, um, she was forming me a band and she was managing the band and uh, she was, you know, used to date the uh, the second guitarist from Radiohead. And so she was like, Pat, I'm going to get us a demo. And uh, and we went to Malibu and cut a demo and, you know, in a studio where like uh, Neil Diamond and Korn had both recorded, <laughs> I think, their first records uh, onto two inch tape. You know, it was it was the very final gasp of that era um so and, uh, so so i mean at this point it was uh it was 2003 so yeah. i was basically the west coast brandon flowers yeah um right down to like the 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 diy armband and the vest and the flat iron <laughs> hair and the guy liner and uh and all the rest um when i finally did meet him uh in gosh um last time i was in new york i was at govball and sort of got to sneak around in the back and sort of met the, the, the killers and um, I met Brandon, uh, at the Soho hotel after the show and, uh, you know, his shirt was buttoned down to here and mine was buttoned <laughs> down to here. And he laughed at the fact that he had like three chest hairs and I had like 300 chest hairs, uh, very, Greek power. Very, very, I know, very, very sweet guy. Um, very sweet guy. Uh, anyway, so 
things were looking pretty good for a minute, you know, rebounding from like being the next sort of uh, Brett to being the next Brandon. Um, but no, uh, I graduated law school, uh, uh, took a sort of celebratory trip uh, to Hawaii with the family and got the call from the manager. Hey, you know, I'm really sorry, but uh, I'm moving to New York with her boyfriend, who's also named James, who was about twice as tall as I am, was um, model British, no green card uh, cast on one of the, the network soaps. So, you know, I'll try to do what I can from here, but like, good luck. Um, and then I knew I was really in trouble because uh, because law school is terrible and uh, I didn't want to take the bar exam, uh, but I had to take the bar exam. Um, and I didn't want to take the bar because I sucked at all the bar courses. Uh, all the non-bar courses were great. You know, con <laughs> law, and, you know, like, this is awesome entertainment law, national security law. I loved all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the bar does not care about that because the bar is there to thin the herd. Uh, the the state of California admits uh, way too many people on purpose. It's like the airlines. They overbook you. Uh, <laughs> and then they just sort of weed you out. Um, and the way they weed you out is with the longest uh, bar exam in the, in, the, in the world, in the cosmos. Oh uh, three Three days. <laughs> <laughs> three-day bar exam uh failed it by 10 points missed it by that much um, 10 points out of uh, out of i don't know a lot of okay okay it many, was, many it, points. Was, it was a sad performance um but it was instructive uh there was no contracts essay on the exam and i knew that there would be on the next one and i knew that i would fail even harder than i did the first time <laughs> so for all the pain and suffering and all the loans um it was freeing because I knew that um, that at last I could go back to uh, the path that it seemed I was supposed to be on. Uh, I did uh, undergrad in three years, um, just sort of ran the table on AP tests. It was like the last year before they decided to say no to that. Um, Sorry, you you went back and did undergrad again? No, 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 no. no. So, so okay, you had, you so had, you had, yeah. Back back in time, a few years to two thousand. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had done that. Uh, you know, very, very overachieving um, lad. Uh, and I then took the fourth year to write the novel um, instead of going to DC uh, to be, you know, a member of the blob, uh, to be a deep stater. That was plan A. Um, and so by the time uh, 2005 rolled around, I thought like, well, maybe, you know, I'll go, I'll go to Washington, but instead of being a deep stater, I'll be a professor of political science. Oh my God. <laughs> I know, I know. So I stopped, uh, I stopped flat ironing the hair. I wiped off the guy liner. Uh, I had to relearn how to like stand up straight instead of like- Hey, there's the, a lot more of that hipster now. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, the, you just waited it out. <laughs> the pain of being ahead of your time is real. Um, got out there, applied only to DC schools for grad school. Uh, worked some truly horrifying uh, JD, but no bar uh, uh, credential jobs. Uh, but even then, those were, you know, it's like 50 an hour plus overtime, uh, which was pretty good if you're rolling in with like a few boxes, not suitcases of clothes yeah. uh, that were shipped media mail um, and a few pennies. Um, and so sort of got on my feet and uh, had a little extra time uh, waiting for those um for those applications to come back and i thought that i would start a blog and that turned out to be a good idea like the first in like three years um started a blog 
postmodern conservative. I got the the dot com for that. Very nice. Uh, even though it was a, still have it. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think it's out there. So so it went like Blogspot to Typepad to to something else. Um, and uh, and so I started started blogging, and uh, to my surprise and delight, uh, there were other you know other young men of ambition out there who themselves were starting their own blogs. Um, and within a, uh, I mean, in hindsight, a, a pretty amusingly brief period of time, uh, I was, you know, I was on the cocktail circuit, like <laughs> on the come up with all the bloggers, that whole generation, um, some of whom are now, you know, uh, what years would this have been? This was, this was, uh, 2005 and six and seven. And then I was actually hired to, uh, to be the politics editor of a, of a new media company, um, alongside uh, a couple guys who went on to, uh, to write for the Atlantic and reason. Um, we had a little posse going and, and it was very exciting and we were publishing everyone and we had a big budget for no apparent reason and burned <laughs> through a lot of money and uh ah, to be a media company and tried in the not late to 2000s. think <clears throat> yeah well i mean i think that the statute of limitations has passed so i'll, I'll tell this story um uh the financial crisis hit um you know with with less than a less than 12 months on the job mm. um and we were all expecting that the money would be gone and we'd come into the office one day and they'd be like, ah, it was a scam. Like, and now it's over. Thank you for your service. Uh, but it didn't happen. And uh, a couple of weeks in, uh, we thought that we would, um, that we would survive, that we'd somehow make it through um, and the money would run out in, in some other way. Uh, and uh, sure enough, um, we were indeed all fired. Um, and we thought that it was because of money reasons. Uh, but in fact, it was because uh, sort of the celebrity co-founder uh, behind the project um, sent a um, a drunken 3 a.m. email reply to the angel investor, uh, and the angel said like, "Well, now you have nothing." So it's Dang. been it's been real, <laughs> uh, and it was real. And um, and I was out on the street again, uh, so to speak, um, uh, sitting at the the Watergate bar with uh, with a young, I guess, Ross Douthit, and he goes. James, everyone knows who you are, but nobody knows what you're for. <laughs> and um, and I thought about that, and uh, and I, I found a few other media jobs, but it was you know the post financial crisis world was pretty sad, and uh, and I just had uh, my son, um, and you got a, a little kid, and you, you're suddenly not in Dupont Circle anymore. You're in in Falls Church, Virginia, and it's like the biggest blizzard since Thomas Jefferson. And it took him two weeks to plow the streets and like the, the gas was out and um, and it felt like time to go back to California, back to LA. Your hatred of cold weather was vindicated. It was. <laughs> it sucks. I don't, you know, to this day, like, I don't understand. I go to, I go to Texas and I was like, when are you moving to Texas? Says, Come on. <laughs> and I'm like, your AC is cranked so high <laughs> that it's like more uncomfortable yeah. indoors than it is outdoors. Yeah, You've James completely is meant for the Mediterranean. <laughs> yes, yes, it yeah. matters. Yeah. I mean, you look at the Mediterranean and it's all liqueurs yeah. and wine and there's like no beer and no liquor. And yeah. that's as it should be, I think, <laughs> via media. Uh, so it's back to LA, um, older, wiser, an adult, a father. Um, 
sort of try to resuscitate the novel and maybe turn it into like a TV pilot. You know, it's it's this weird sort of like the Obama sort of moment mm -hmm. when the smartphone is beginning to take over and uh, nobody knows really what is about to happen to them. Um, the, the digital swarm has not yet fully engulfed the world. Uh, and... Um, and yet the uh, the bloom was not entirely off the the new media rose. Mm -hmm. uh, so I became sort of the token, you know, the diversity hire at the Huffington Post, which is mm. starting their live uh, online video um, wing, HuffPost Live. Uh, and basically just, you know, booking guests and producing segments, uh, which we did through, you know, Google chat, basically. <laughs> um and uh, and once again, you know, like, well, the money's coming from somewhere and, you know, you sort of working with friends and hiring friends and hiring friends out from D.C. and feeling, you know, reasonably, reasonably cool again, like Snapchat appears, Vice comes <laughs> to L.A., um, the energy is morphing into something um, meaningful. And, uh, you know, there there weren't a ton of kind of, you know, self-described libertarians who were perhaps a bit more based than that, but there was no word for that in those days. Um, uh, but nevertheless, you know, the left was more interesting then, um, much more accommodating and much more risk-taking mm -hmm. uh, and a little scene of kind of heterodox leftists started to grow up around uh, the LA of those years. Um, some of the vice guys, uh, Oliver Stone in his circle, <laughs> um, Glenn Greenwald, uh, although he wasn't, you know, necessarily physically present in LA, he was kind of in that scene, um, Young Turks, uh, and, uh, Michael Hastings. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was like at Coachella with Michael Hastings, sort of <laughs> like doing, doing the thing, never got the invite to Oliver Stone's. Um, and definitely didn't get the invite to Oliver Stone's because uh, Hastings was was snuffed out, um, which was shocking. And um, I still feel disinclined to share details about that episode. Um, but it was eye opening um, and it broke the back of that scene. Uh, the last kind of, you know, piece of 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 meaning that I was able to carry away from that era uh, was the Young Turks were looking for a a token uh, to come on the show and and kind of be the token guy who is not a lefty, um, and so they asked Glenn, and Glenn goes like, <laughs> "Oh, you like Call of James? Like he's local, you know? He can he looks like he he deserves to be there in some way, which is kind of a backhanded compliment of television." Um, and uh, and so they bring me on and I'm kind of like a semi regular on the Young Turks. Um, and, you know, they were actually actually really nice as um, as what's his name from from LCD Sound System says. Uh, and we did some shows and we had a good time. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I really owe uh, Glenn a, a pretty big, you know, he, he did me a real solid there um, because everything was sort of melting. Mm -hmm. And then there was this one kind of lifeline. So the, you know, the Young Turks thing turned into a call from uh, from Russell Brand. Uh, hey, you know, we're doing rehearsals for the Russell Brand show on FX. Do you want to come do the, the rehearsals and be like the rehearsal guest star? Uh, so we did like, you know, three shows or three or four shows in these theaters in LA. And, uh, it was him the whole time. Matt Stoller was, was producing, sort of writing all, <laughs> all the segments. 
Um, and I would come up and like sort of be like a, like a weirder version of my ordinary self and do like the witty banter with uh, with Rusty Rockets, um, you know, and and now it's it's 2022 and uh, people are saying Russell Brand is based and Glenn Greenwald is writing for Sorab. And um, it's been fascinating to see yeah. everything come full circle. Yeah, it's all the same people. Yeah, it's all the same people. So you uh, end up doing those shows and then you end up kind of coming back into formal political world claremont institute you write a book about politics how'd that happen uh so you know sure enough uh huffpost live was shut down uh they wanted to to fly me out to new york and have me basically they're like you're la is doing so great you guys you're like half the staff and half the hours is new york but you're producing like twice the twice the clicks like twice the eyeballs so what we're going to do is we're going to take our favorites from the L.A. team and we're going to move you to D.C. and we're going to just fire everyone else. It's going to be great. Um, and, you know, I had I had seen this movie before and I could smell the stench of death beginning to rise. Um, and they were making promises. I was like, you know what? I am going to pass. Um, <laughs> and uh, and pass I did. Um and entered uh, into the wonderful world of freelancing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I felt that as a as a family man, I did not have the option of returning to a place like Washington, D.C. Um, I uh, started writing what there was to write. Um, and some of those gigs were pretty lucrative and some of them were very depressing and humiliating. Uh, but no one can tell the difference from the outside. <laughs> Um, and it gave me enough sort of head space um, and headroom that um, when I got a call from an agent in New York saying, hey, uh, I've been looking for someone to write a book on Alexis de Tocqueville and talk to a couple of people and your name keeps coming up. You know, are you interested? Um, and that was going to be uh, the, the subject of my dissertation uh, at Georgetown. Um, I had the committee lined up. I had the proposal uh, accepted. Um, 2008 had come along and uh, Josh Mitchell, who has gone on to uh, great, great intellectual fame, at least in my circles. He's brilliant. Uh, Sammy Future Down, guest on this podcast. We've I should try so. to book it for some time. No, no, he's he's squirrely, but he's worth chasing down. Um, Josh says, James, something very terrible is happening in academia. Uh, I don't know uh, what it is or how long it's going to last. You seem to have a good thing going as a writer. Don't be afraid to run. Um, that's just the way that he spoke and yeah. that, that he speaks. Um, you know, this is the guy who would say in the middle of a lecture, uh, academia is the last feudal institution in America. Find your feudal lord. He will protect you. <laughs> uh, and he was right, but not even he could protect me from uh, Wall Street. And uh, and so I did run back to L.A., as I had said. Uh, and so I felt that I had the opportunity um, not just to at last write a book, but to, you know, maybe salvage what was left of my my grad school experience. Uh, so I wrote the book, uh, The Art of Being Free. Um, it was really about the 90s and, <laughs> and about Tocqueville secondarily. Um, once again, you know, kind of ahead of, of the curve a bit. Um, a few years before that, I had been commissioned by Jonah Goldberg. Um, none less than Jonah himself, um, to contribute to uh, an edited volume of young conservative authors. <laughs> um, I have been called a, a rising conservative voice. Uh, in, I think our friend in Nate two Hawkman separate posted the like 
the, the list of the people and like it's funny to see i think helen was part of it oh yeah my kerchick was in there doherty yeah um it was it's all the same people yeah. just over <laughs> and over again uh, so, you know, as someone who uh, who David Brooks called a rising conservative voice oh, in, no. uh, in, two, in, <laughs> in two columns, 10 years apart, um, I was, you know, at that time, a, a young conservative voice, um, wrote uh, my chapter for Jonah. And that was basically about Fight Club um, and when I was living in L.A. Uh, for the first time writing the novel. In 2001, uh, I discovered belatedly that I was actually living in the uh, in the apartment building that is in Fight Club where his apartment explodes. Uh, I was like uh, one one floor up and a few uh, units over. Um, in the movie, he says it was a filing cabinet for widows and young professionals. The walls were made of concrete. It's true. It's all true. <laughs> um, it's called Pearson Towers in the movie. In reality, it's Promenade Towers, uh, mm. just up at First and Figueroa. Um, a, a landmark that for some reason it doesn't have like there's no plaque. They're not like a pile of flowers at the base of the building. Uh, but it was there and I was there. Um, and so I wrote this, you know, this like red pilled essay about Fight Club in a Jonah Goldberg volume and nobody read it and nobody read the book. <laughs> and uh, it's probably worth something now. Um, and so uh, so ahead uh, of the curve on that, ahead of the curve on uh, the the 90s Tocqueville book. Um, but it was a big five. We're, we're now, I think, down to big two publishing firms. They're all, you know, sort of Germans just infiltrating. Um, uh, St. Martin's put it out. I know what that reference means. <laughs> we have a mutual friend who explained to me what exactly the publishing houses are at this point. Yes. Um, I think one of the the heads, you know, like had like died under unnatural sort of circumstances and they immediately consolidated. Anyway, um, uh, did the book St. Martin's put it out? St. Martin's was fine. You know, the process was was not the horror that it is now, where it's like, uh, you refer to someone as fat on page <laughs> two eighty three, and you may, you know, we're we're holding the book until you make these. Uh, it wasn't that. Um, the editing process was fine. Uh, the main problem was uh, zero promotion, zero marketing, zero budget. Um, as so many authors, you know, sort of come to discover. Uh, it's like, you know, your first time might hurt a little and <laughs> this is true. And so, uh, I had to do my own publicity tour. I had to do my own, uh, book sort of appearances. Uh, I did DC, I did Austin, I did New York. Um, I did LA, I did, uh, I don't know, somewhere else, uh, Charlottesville. Um, it all looked like a success. It mm -hmm. felt like a success. Um, the book came out on inauguration weekend of 2017. Uh, wow. So it was on all the end caps of all the Barnes and Nobles in all the world, uh, sandwiched between like uh, Taibbi's book on uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, and you know the the first wave of Trump books. Um, and so uh, so it was it was there for people to buy and it did OK for what it was. Um, but it was it was a call to uh, reject the temptations of insanity. Uh, it was really a a an analysis of Tocqueville, which said, look, American life is inherently decentered. We are in constitutively crazy, restless people. Um, and a lot of this came from Mitchell, you know, the restless soul, St. Augustine, your the psychology of people, especially in democratic times, oscillating between brooding inwardness and like frenetic, competitive, envious outwardness. Um, 
And so, you know, this was not like a like a problem to be solved or a, a sickness to be cured. Um, it was a, a condition to yeah. be uh, endured and hopefully ameliorated um, wisely and prudently and soulfully in a way that would allow us to preserve uh, what is in many ways otherwise very fragile arrangement. Um, and as if with one voice, America rose up in 2017 and said, no, we wish to be crazier more <laughs> insane uh so that put a um you know ceiling on the number of units that could be moved uh like so many authors i was reduced to the level of having to blast that email to everyone in the rolodex including people you hoped never to hear from again <laughs> uh just begging you know I, I really need those stars on amazon you guys like first week sales are so important <laughs> like i please i'd be just degrading yeah. you know and to this day i see you know people in some cases like 20 years my senior like sending the email and it hits <sighs> the inbox and you look at it <laughs> And you can feel their pain. Yeah. It just oozes off of the of the the pleading email. Um, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, so I didn't like that. Uh, I didn't like um, uh, having to sort of argue upstream of the culture. Um, it was definitely not cool in that moment to be a sort of contrarian. You know, it was like uh, Hitchens had 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 died at that point i think mm -hmm. um and you know when i was in dc i paid my pilgrimage to to hitch and i brought him uh, a vintage boxed set of the alexandria quartet of wine <laughs> um uh the wine was gone in about you know before the, the 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 bottle was was upturned um he brought out a bowl of ice and a handle of of johnny black and he said you know the first one i pull for you and after that you're on your own and, uh, <laughs> we just sat in the in the window of his uh of his flat and the sweat gradually began, you know, in the yeah. August heat to just it, saturate his, his shirt and mind. It's not a mystery why he died at the age that he it, did. No, it is not. Um, it is not. And uh, and so I got back from from book tour with, you know, the interview in the Washington Post, like Sonny Bunny, you know, just like calling in every favor <laughs> I could. And people were obliging, um, as they should have been. Yeah. You know, we were all sort of on the same page. You were the most interesting person they knew. <laughs> I mean, it was the Obama years, the, the last, the final yeah. gasp of the Obama years. And Wh which putative conservative were they going to call? Ken Ham? Like, what was the plan? <laughs> yeah. I and, yeah. and no one really, you know, there were no Trumpists really based. It didn't exist. Uh, even nationalism was sort of like, oh, like, Pepe you can't. Um, <laughs> And so I was trying to be, you know, I was trying to be reasonable and trying to be interesting and trying to be accessible yeah. um, and trying to do that all, you know, in a way to kind of launder my graduate education um, through, you know, so ab above the above the the footnotes, it was very uh, pop. And uh, in the footnotes, it was very, uh, I think Mark Hemingway in the Washington or sorry, the uh, the Weekly Standard said that uh, that I that I cleaned out the Augean stables of political theory <laughs> in the footnotes, uh, which I appreciated. Um, but nevertheless, uh, when I got home, you know, I hadn't worked really in in about a month. There was no uh, there was no food in the fridge. Uh, I had no clean clothes. Um, I didn't know what time zone I was in anymore. I had no circadian rhythms, like totally <laughs> arithmetic. Um, and I didn't know what to do. You know, do I just keep repeating myself? Uh, do I come up with like new and dumber ideas and see, <laughs> see how those do? Um, uh, it was totally exhausting and, uh, very dispiriting. Um, and all I knew was that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. Um, 
And uh, little did I know that uh, within a very short period of time, um, American affairs appeared. Um, the American mind uh, became a thing that needed me. Um, Matt Peterson, uh, basically, it was just really James Poulos made into a publication. Well, <laughs> you know, Matt Matt was told to to recreate a West Coast Straussian blog, uh, mm -hmm. which the, the Claremont Institute had been doing uh, back in the before times. Uh, and so he said, like, well, can I at least like hire someone so that it's not just like me in the closet, sort of like you know, have it staring at a thousand yards? Um, <laughs> and the answer was yes. Yeah. Uh, so I came in about, you know, I don't know, a month or two after this thing was was conceived of. Uh, and suddenly, you know, my my fortunes had changed um, and the country had changed along with me. Um, uh, you know, I I I did do a little bit of TV still at that time. Uh, I used to do the, the trips out to New York and sort of like do Chris Hayes, you know, and uh and those guys um i don't think i've ever seen one of these clips and i'm going to immediately go hunt one down <laughs> i can't stop you and i won't stop you uh but i did larry king um uh around that time the 2018 era uh he had a little studio in uh, in glendale um and he was being syndicated by aura mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the carlos slim channel right mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, he was still like his, his, <laughs> his self, you know, like this and, uh, with the suspenders and, you know, the, uh, the sneakers under the table, um, the, the Tolkien-esque age and gaunt face. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, so I really got to like, um, figure out my, um, my intellectual relationship to Trump, like in real time yeah. on, on Larry King, uh, you know, and, and it was important at the time to be like, look, I'm not afraid. Like, why? Why are people afraid yeah, of seems like a nice guy, <laughs> Donald Trump? I mean, this is not, you know, whatever it is, it's not going to be the apocalypse. Um, and and so it was not uh, because digital technology was the apocalypse and, <laughs> and not Donald Trump. Uh, so, you know, that that's kind of just morphed into the era that we live in now. Um, and, uh, you know, the people are still all the same. A lot of folks have sort of changed hats or, uh, uh, you know, evolved, uh, ascended to uh, to a higher level or a lower level. Um, Glenn but, Greenwald is more right wing than Jenna Goldberg now. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, and uh, Claremont's been great. Uh, mm -hmm. Ryan very obligingly gave me uh, three weeks to write the next book, uh, Human Forever, which is somewhere yeah looming over Behind my shoulders <laughs> staring at you <laughs> uh yeah so that was um that was july of uh of 2021 um i wanted to do a shorter book i wanted to do endnotes instead of footnotes um and i wanted to do something that would that would last uh that would not just be pulped by the, one of the big five publishers um that would not require of me the the email of debasement um or abasement um there's nowhere i can rate this book five stars there is but <laughs> it, uh if if you go to uh, canonic.xyz where the book is exclusively oh, sold uh, okay. you can post onto the blockchain yeah. a review uh which i would encourage you and everyone uh, listening to or watching this uh, this little chat to do canonic.xyz. Uh, the book is Human Forever. Um, wrote it that July. Uh, 
started printing uh, in September of, of 21. Uh, a very few lucky folks got uh, early copies um, and uh, the experience was totally different. Um, this was a book that uh, that was only edited by Spencer Clavin um, at the Claremont Institute, uh, the very erudite and very obliging Spencer Clavin. Um, to whom I owe a debt um, because you can't edit your own book no matter how much you want to. <laughs> um, and uh, privately printed. Um, and uh, so no, you know, no publishers freaking out, no editors um, seeing you rolling and hating, uh, no paper supply. You know, that became a problem. Paper supply challenges, logistical problems due to COVID. Uh, a lot of books, you know, Christmas book season was almost canceled. And people were freaking out. Uh, didn't have to worry about those things. Um, and on top of it all, uh, you know, posted immutably to the Bitcoin blockchain, um, which is which is nice. Uh, and we were able to NFT uh, the hardcover, the, the premium super duper version of the book, uh, which um, had not yet been done. I don't think it's been done uh, again since. Um, but you know, people. Well, wait a minute. You made sixty thousand dollars in twenty five hours. You know, like what about my book? And it's like, well, so, so what to, about you? To book? clarify, you only sold a hundred of those NFTs. Yes, and very limited edition. Six hundred dollars in BSV, which is a type of Bitcoin, each. Yes. Okay. Um, the community came out and represented very strongly. Um, and you know, totally different experience. Uh, and I was convinced to do this. It wasn't very hard to convince me to do it. Um. It appealed to my, you know, my desire to sort of create my own scene rather than trying to uh, to compete, to conform with a pre-existing scene. Uh, but really, the medium uh, is the message with the book. Uh, yes, read the book. Yes, the content of the book is important. Um, but still more important is, is what is being embodied and modeled with the book, which is, look, the technology, digital technology has advanced or developed to a point where you do not need to be a blue check. You do not need to be an expert. You do not need to be a, a, an Ivy League credentialed ethicist. You do not need to be, you know, a sort of uh, 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 woke penitent of any kind. You do not need any special credential or expertise or capability in order to avail yourself of what's one of the most powerful digital tools in the world, um, which is Bitcoin, uh, and use it uh, to build digital institutions, new digital institutions where ordinary people uh, who have their heads screwed on straight can uh, create um, independently uh, cultural artifacts, uh, memorable, valuable, soulful artifacts and build algorithmic markets and economies around them, uh, enriching their, you know, those with whom they freely associate. Mm -hmm. Very American. You know, and how does how does Bitcoin work? It's called proof of work. And what that means is the way that you uh, succeed in commanding compute to add your work onto the blockchain uh, is by having uh, computers compete to solve a math problem. And what could be more, you know, Protestant than that? <laughs> um, and we can argue all day about sort of denominations of Christianity and which is best suited to survive these times. But I think, you know, we should all recognize that whatever else you can say about Protestantism, it's America and America is going to remain a, a Protestant inflected uh, regime or civilization, uh, certainly for a while, at least. 
um, you know, uh, as someone who think who thinks that the uh, the Orthodox theologians basically got it right, um, <laughs> you know, I'm I've I've made my peace with being among the the one percent of of yes, uh, observant uh, Orthodox, um, and uh, and that's okay. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think America's going to collapse. I, I've got, uh, sufficiently, you know, red and black pilled, um, <laughs> not, not that it's anarchist and communist, but you know, the other kind, uh, James is 500 years of Protestant heresy coming to an end. You know, the father's returning. It's all, you know, pack it in. You have no nation anymore. There's nothing but the monasteries, you know, go and code, um, or mine, I should say. Uh, and it's not that I find that argument to be uh, unpersuasive. You know, I find it to be perfectly persuasive. I mean, God punishes people every day. Like, why would why would twenty twenty two be any different? And in fact, there's there are signs that it's it's not different at all, just more of the same. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm an American. I'm stuck being an American, and uh, I care about my country. I love my country, and I love its people, uh, warts and all. Um, and I love our humanity. I love being human. Being human is a precious gift. Um, it's not bad news. Uh, and if we if we turn our back on those things, um, then we'll really, you know, then then the the punishment will really come down. Um, and we're already, you know, uh, reeling from the the digital apocalypse uh, as it is. And so I wanted to clearly demonstrate, you know, show not tell to people. That yeah, you know, I did this book because I don't know, because I was capable of of just actually writing the thing. But there's nothing magical or special or alchemic. You just bring to the table what you have to bring to the table. You are good enough right now, uh, and I think a lot of people need to hear that, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people want to hear that. And they when they hear it inside their own head, they doubt that voice. They know no one's going to come save them. Um, and in many cases, they're jumping up and down, waving money in their hands. You know, someone. Just point, you know, give me the ball, point in a direction, tell me where to go. Um, they want to, uh, they want to assemble, you know, they want to assemble with people like that. I mean, you wouldn't know it from the news, but uh, still a majority of Americans uh, embrace their country, its technology, and the biblical God, you know, Christians. Uh, who who are do not think the technology is evil uh, and and do not think that America is bad. That's should the they? majority in the U.S. You said there's a digital apocalypse coming. Why should? Oh no no, no it's already. I mean, it, it, it arrived <laughs> like 2007. You know, the iPhone. That was uh, that was when. And we, what did it do to America? What did it do to the world? Well, gosh, I mean, look around. Uh, but but really, what it did. I mean, you you you. We went from uh. We went from computers being uh, these kind of tape decks that filled a warehouse uh, to being things that fit on your desktop, to being things that fit in your hand. Uh, but what was going on at that time, uh, more subtly in some ways, but considerably more powerfully in others, was computers, digital devices were becoming invisible. Um, most people's interactions with digital devices are with invisible ones, programs, algorithms, Wi-Fi, information, packets flying through the air, mm -hmm. violating the rules of human spacetime. Um, you know, we, we like to talk about five eyes. Um, I always screw this up because it's math. But, you know, when when I think of five eyes, I think of, you know, these these digital entities, interoperable Um instantaneous in their communication 5g means zero latency basically so anything that's networked with anything else can kind of instantly communicate with it violating the laws of human space time 
um, uh, innumerable, really, you know, how many of these things can dance on the head of a pin? Uh, that's three. Um, information entities, right? It's all info flying around. Um, and then the fifth one, you know, we'll we'll fix it in post. There are five of them. But anyway, you know, these are all <laughs> things that until um, around 2007 or 2008, and maybe not even, you know, maybe later than that, uh, were only throughout all of human history associated, capabilities associated only with angels and demons. And we have created technologies that can now do things and do do things constantly every day without interruption that only spiritual beings were considered capable of doing. And that changes human life, not merely by tweaking the dials of speed on certain human phenomena. It's difference in degree. It's not difference in degree. It's difference in kind. It's what David Bowie said. It's an alien invasion. <laughs> You know, we were waiting for the Hale-Bopp comet or for little <laughs> little gray men to beam us up. Uh, we didn't get beamed up. Uh, they they beamed in, um, and they weren't you know sort of uh, uh, scrawny little super spurg characters with enormous heads. Uh, in fact, they were they were not life forms at all. Uh, they're they're not alive. Um, they are not ensouled. Uh, they were not created by God. Um, they're very unlike you and me. They are indifferent to us. Um, and, uh, and they conquered the world in a way that no person or group of people can any longer conquer the world until further notice. Uh, before they came along, it was TV land and it was, um, it wasn't about machine memory the way that it is now. It was about human imagination. Human imagination ruled the world. Uh, you, John Lennon sang about it, imagination would save us. Um, Willy Wonka, pure imagination. Uh, Disney's Imagineers, George Lucas, Industrial Light and Magic. I mean, this was it. Uh, whoever dreamed the biggest and best dreams deserved to rule the world and did rule the world. And that was America. That was the experience of technology that led the people who created digital tech to expect and not just hope or not just believe, but truly expect that these devices would complete or consummate our form of rule of the best um, and purest dreams and fantasies uh, across the entire planet, bring everyone together. Everyone would basically become one of these televisual Americans mm -hmm. uh, and it would end history. Um, and that is what we thought uh, happened. Um, and when it turned out that maybe something else was going on and that, oh, social media is like got Donald Trump elected kind of, um, well, the powers that be did not like that very much. And, you know, we see how they reacted. Lockdown, literally, figuratively, prison lockdown. And, you know, we're going to we're going to shut this down until we can figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> Um, and they're just clawing back all of those, you know, all those organizations. I mean, big tech, this is not just like quirky geniuses in their garage like these were guys who figured out how to how to wrap military technology in an industrial code in a, an entertainment coding i should say um and sell it as consumer electronics to people as mm -hmm. as as you know imagination machines genies and bottles um and now we're paying the price for that uh and you know the uh the military and intelligence folks um who who did all the r d I mean, cable television, touchscreen, uh, GPS, I mean, every single thing that goes into a tablet or a smartphone or, you know, um, uh, 
a few other sort of elements of our communications infrastructure. It's all weaponry that's been repurposed. Um, and, you know, we're like barbarians trying to eat a nice dinner with like a mace in one hand and an axe in the other. <laughs> um, and it just doesn't work. Um, we're trying to have polite social interactions using weapons of war. Yeah. And then like, oh, why are we hurting each other? Oh, man, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. I'm so, just touching you with the point of a spear <laughs> at great velocity. That's right. Uh, the spears have become autonomous. Yes. Uh, I mean, we've got a world that is swarming with autonomous weapons already. Um, we just don't want to admit it. Uh, you know, Marshall McLuhan was right. There's a deep-seated repugnance in the human breast. Uh, people do not want to understand what is going on around them because it will, uh, you know, rub their nose in their responsibility for uh, their share of what's going on. Um, and so can people fight this? The invasion that's happened? Is it too late? It's I mean, it's over, you know, like this isn't this isn't like well uncle ted says that if we just like <laughs> mail some nail bombs to intellectuals that like no like not only is that obviously you know a, a more great moral evil uh it just doesn't you hear that mr fed doesn't work. It just doesn't work anymore. i mean it's you know you if you think that the hatred of the second amendment is intense guns are worthless now you can't overthrow the government and even if you could that would be bad too so like nobody needs these things they do nothing but ill they're evil we should just get rid of them if you think the hatred for the second amendment is bad wait until people figure out that what we're going to be talking about for the next you know five to ten years is a second amendment for compute americans need and have a natural right to the free use of our most powerful digital technologies to freely associate and to create commercial and cultural value period and that is not what they have right now and the sec and the the intelligence borg and members of congress and members of the administrative state are hell-bent on taking it away from them for good why because the first time it felt like people had a taste of that they elected donald trump yeah or said main things about you know immoral games journalists <laughs> Uh, after Obama's um, re-election, the MIT Tech Review put out um, uh, an issue of their very fancy magazine uh, with a huge portrait of Bono on it um, and uh, a huge headline that said, how big data will save politics. <laughs> uh, and on the eve of uh, Trump's uh, attempted re-election, uh, the MIT Tech Review put out uh, a, a quite different cover story, um, which was basically, you know, how uh, technology, uh, how to save democracy from technology. Wow, how much has changed, you know? <laughs> um, Barack Obama himself, former president, uh, told, I think, Ezra Klein on the eve of that uh, election um, that basically the internet is the biggest threat to our democracy. I mean, you know, Mr. Selfie Stick himself, <laughs> uh, how things have changed. Uh, and it wasn't just Trump. It was, oh, my goodness, you know, populism, nationalism, yellow vests. I mean, you know, Viktor Orban, oh, all of these things. Oh, my God. The Internet is, uh, you know, is 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 uh, is pulling ancient hatreds out of the ether and introducing them back into society. And it's like, well, if you understood the tools that you were creating, if you read a, just a little bit of McLuhan, you might understand that media have formative effects on our environment, on our inner and outer lives, on our senses and sensibilities, on our spirits, and maybe even our souls. 
And not in a way that like oh, suddenly, you know, racism is back, you guys. It's much more profound and sweeping than that. Um, the last time that we lived in a media environment where recordation and recall was the most powerful form of communications technology, one that 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 shaped and reformed uh, the entire sort of cultural uh, milieu or civilization in its image was in the Middle Ages, in the in the scribal age, when you had, you know, recordation and recall. Say what you mean by that. Well, you, you had monk after monk sitting in, you know, all these scriptoria, just sort of like remembering things and copying things and writing them down and preserving the wisdom and the knowledge of the ages. And now that we've automated that process. Um, and it's a little clumsy because, you know, these these uh, these little guys write everything down. Uh, they record everything, all the photos, all the all, all the jokes, tweets, all, all your tweets, all your bad tweets, everything, <laughs> every single thing. Um it's uh, it's it's a map that is larger than the territory, uh, and those who are among our ruling factions want to use that power uh, to control the map that is bigger than the territory that is swallowing the territory. I mean, Google don't be evil and replaced it with organize the world's information. <laughs> well, why would you do that? Oh, to rule the world. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. To create a new world that swallows this world because human beings can't rule this world anymore. The bots got to it first. So they want to just go back a level and, uh, and build a sort of sphere around the earth and and control that sphere uh and control the swarm that is that is that sphere i mean michael Crichton wrote a book called sphere that is basically about this you know alien thing lands in the ocean team goes down tries to figure out what it is it's an intelligence that uh that convinces them that they um are you know whatever they want to be so that it can absorb them or whatever and, and have their power um and uh, you know we we really need to recognize that um, that the the ancient things the pre modern things that are being retrieved as McLuhan said they would be retrieved um, are primal and cosmic and uh, and are not our friend. Um, it's not about microaggressions. It's not about insensitive jokes. Um, it is about the archetypal power of the serpent, uh, the serpent that eats its own tail, uh, the thing that makes people say, like, I'm not going to have children. I'm not going to uh, have a job. I'm not going to have a family. I'm not really going to do anything. Um, uh, it's it's a very primordial sort of nihilism. Um, and the triumph of these bots raises the ultimate questions about who we are and why should, we should bother being who we are. Uh, people are ha people are reacting to that, and they're reacting to it theologically because there's no more potent uh, uh, way to react. There's nothing else to hold onto under those circumstances than than theology, than an understanding of the divine in your place uh, in in the the cosmos of the divine. Who in, is your god? Who are you worshiping? That's what's dictating the pace of of political change right now. In a variety of different fantasy media, um, and I'm sure historically speaking as well, there's a concept that inside the city, which represents civilization, you do not bring weapons. You do not bury your weapons inside the city because this is the civilized place. And like we don't built, take your guns to town. Right. We, we, we built all these cities and we, we made it basically, you know, gauche or Duracur to walk in with an AK-47 strapped across your back, but you can bring your cell phone. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then we wonder why all of the primal 
hatreds uh, or allegiances that people feel come roaring back. You wouldn't you wouldn't question it if you know everyone started carrying swords around the city and people just don't see these technological tools as that. They still think it's happy go lucky. We're all going to be connected around the world. Well, they they are they are mistakenly convinced that these things and all of the invisible stuff that flows out of them is ultimately rational. You know, well, it's math, it's code and math and code are, are the, the bedrock of reality. And those things are rational. They're pure reason. Um, you know, but if you just read a little Bertrand Russell and he's like, well, there's really nothing more pleasurable and, and more purely human than to contemplate the, uh, the, uh, the austere beauty of mathematics. It's, you know, forget religion that stuff is for idiots like it's really just worshiping i mean contemplating <laughs> mathematics um and it's true i mean just take five five minutes like like you know like like reading about um about quantum physics like the the there are no fundamental building blocks of reality you keep zooming in and what you find is like uh there's like this energy thing and then it like is interacting with something five light years away like it's it, we don't get to understand this stuff we can play with it and we can poke at it but we can't master it and we can't create it and what that tells me is that um the foundation of the universe is god and that we don't get to know everything um and that the foundations are not rational foundations they are mysterious foundations mm -hmm. Uh, and if we are unable to uh, to live uh, with that reality, uh, we are going to drive ourselves insane trying to be rational, trying to explain it all. Explanation is not going to save us. People know this. I mean, I watch these, you know, well-meaning guys log the facts on. and logic will preserve these guys creation. log on every day and they're like this post is the one you guys like you must click on this post you must watch my video like i'm going to explain everything yeah. to you and this is the one you can stop searching the full explanation <laughs> and it's like bro explanation is not what's going to save us life abides and resides in the implicit it is the the things that are unsaid in the conversation around the campfire that make the conversation around the campfire what it is it is the things that cannot be expressed that that where you really experience like the love that you have for someone or the, the love that you have for God. Um, this obsession with vivisecting everything in order to try to master it. Well, all that you end up with is like this corpse. Um, and so, you know, the Googlers and the NSA people and, you know, everyone in, in our ruling factions who thinks that, uh, that the best that they can do is to, uh, is to poke and prod this digital swarm, which is not alive, but acts like it's alive, uh, and learn from it by organizing the world's information, creating the biggest swarm, and then you start poking at it and learning what it does when you poke it in a certain way, and that's how you rule things. I mean, it's really, you know, it's like a death cult. It's it's an obsession with controlling the living through that which is not alive and analogizing the living to that which is not alive and treating the living as if ultimately it's really not alive and you know you, it helps to be a christian to understand these things but you don't have to be you can go straight back to aristotle i mean fundamental thing for aristotle is you've got biology and you've got physics you two different kinds of things do you you've think that living animated matter and not do, do you think non-christians can understand the war that you are talking about this is one of the things that i've, I've wondered is that you know I, I i have sort of a prop bet with someone that that you the things you talk about are more likely to be read 100 years from now than basically anyone else we know. And the reason why is because there is very, very few people in American life today that both understand technology and B, are Christian. Uh, and that without that second bit, you're grasping 
Well, and a lot of Christians are sort of don't understand things the way that they think they do either. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the sacraments are important. Um, apostolic authority so is important. <laughs> um, so true, King. <laughs> you know, the uh, the repository of religious wisdom, the saints are important. Um, these are exemplars. These are not explainers, you know, explainers. These are exemplars. Um, but look, you don't have to be a Christian to understand this stuff. But I, I suspect that it is very difficult to withstand it if you are not a Christian. Um, because uh, th- understanding um, what is happening to us is not entertaining. Um, it's not a game. Uh, and the benefits of understanding are not the kind of benefits that make this world go round. Um, and why is Luddism not the answer? It doesn't work. I mean, you can't play like the Pennsylvania Dutch. They live on a farm. It's not like the old days when <laughs> you could just march out into a field with your breech loader muskets and you pot and take down a few redcoats and it's the shot heard around the world and everything changes. Everything doesn't change anymore. It's changed. That happened. And now what we need to do, it's much more important to understand what happened than it is to try to guess at what's going to happen. Um, you have to look back in order to understand where you are right now, not, not look forward, not try to forecast, not try to prognosticate, not try to be a guru, not try to use your imagination. It's about using your human memory, which is, uh, distinct from and sacred in a way that machine memory is not. Why? Because it's less correct. Because it's, (laughs) because it wasn't created by us. It's not a tool that we fabricated with expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like the sorcerer's apprentice or the monkey's paw. I mean, mm-hmm. this is just straight out of, you know, everyone from Goethe to Norbert Wiener. Careful what you wish for. You just might get it and you might not actually like it. And it might turn out to, like, kill you or make you lose your mind mm-hmm. or uh, or incapacitate you or cripple you. Um, and that's, you know, and that's what is happening to people. I mean, look around. Obesity up, testosterone down, sperm counts down, uh uh, prescription drugs, people just locked in, never going to get off them again. Birth rates crashing. Um, the the nihilism is rampant, and it is it is just very difficult to face um, the world that we are stuck with, unless you have the attitude of life is a trial, and you must take up the cross. And if you are unwilling to bear the burden of um, of the cross, of the sorrows of this world and the folly of man and our imperfections and our inability to escape our human being um, and recognize in spite of it all that this is a precious gift that our body and our soul uh, must be inviolate and cannot be cast aside or vivisected or chopped up into bits or turned into Lego parts. Um, then how are you going to make it through? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's, it's difficult for a Christian. A lot of Christians would prefer to, you know, Jesus is my friend and like life is exciting (laughs) and I'm so like on fire with the Lord. And I'm not here to tell people to not feel that way, but I am here to tell them like, you need depth of soul and you need to be spiritually prepared, um, not to be rewarded 
for your understanding of what has befallen us and our responsibility therein. Uh, the rewards are, you know, God is watching. And uh, if, if you are going to reorient or orient your life around uh, that which is most eternal and blessed in us, those things are invisible. You know, we have sort of superpowers too. It's not just the bots. Yes, they're mm -hmm. invisible. Yes, they can be everywhere at once. Mm -hmm. um, but we have souls mm -hmm. and we are a community of souls and a community of the living and the dead. And, um, you know, people get sort of bent out of shape when I say like, oh, well, you know, don't worry. Like the the bodily resurrection is coming you know, when, <laughs> when God the Father says it's coming. So we don't need to worry about trying to bring heaven to earth or trying to, you know, immunitize the eschaton or trying to live forever. You know, it's all it's all been taken care of. And sometimes people look at me as if I'm I'm trying to get a rise out of them. And maybe I am. But is that any crazier than like, don't worry, it soon we'll figure out how to siphon our consciousness out of ourselves and spit it into a, an invisible machine mm -hmm. and then we'll live forever and, and become as gods. I mean, Stuart Brand was banging on about this stuff decades ago. Yeah. We're, we, we've become as gods and we'd better get used to it. Sir, I'm sorry, but we are human beings. Yeah. And how about we get we, we yeah. get good at that first? That, that machine killed you and is impersonating you. You have not transferred your soul into it. Um, yeah. It's always a fun litmus test is asking people what exactly they think happens when you transfer your consciousness to a machine. These people can't <laughs> even explain what consciousness is. And yeah. that's because it defies explanation. Yeah. Sorry, scientists, you are out of a job. But what does reconciliation, I'll put it this way, you know, uh, society if, you know, man's relationship to technology was as it ought to be, what would that look like? Would those exist? Would pa pa paint a picture? Well, you know, I mean, this is this is really a little too much like Imagineering. For me. <laughs> I know the temptation is always there. The temptation is always there to say, if only, if only, if only, if only, you know, if only my great idea was if only everyone did what I wanted them to do, then we'd be then we'd be OK. We're not there is no OK. There are no guarantees. Life is a risk, dog. Like you just have to, like, pick up that cross and start walking. There is no solution. This is not this is not a sickness to be cured. It's not a problem to be solved. It's not an equation to be balanced. It is life and it is a mess. And the only joy and glory that is to be found in this life is by fearlessly subjecting yourself to the trial of life with as much love and grace as you can muster regardless of how painful it is and regardless of how much you are made to suffer. So technology, especially digital technology, is a yet another heavier weight for humanity to train itself against and become strong enough to repel. It is it is a, a level of responsibility that few are prepared to accept. Mm -hmm. um, responsibility comes from an ancient word, probably 12, 15,000 years old, uh, meaning the repeated pouring out of sacrificial libations. Responsibility is a fundamentally theological concept. Who are you pouring out your libations to? Mm -hmm. You know, And people don't want to talk about that. They don't want to really sit down and be honest about who or what it is that they're pouring out their libations to. And a lot of people are like, oh, don't worry. I'm not worshiping false gods. I worship <laughs> idols, idols of my own creation. I'll be okay. Um, you know, 
Would that it were so simple. It's not Satan. It's just me. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's too easy to say like, oh, these devices are demonic. And it's like, well, no, they're not. You know, they we created them. and we, we don't have the power to create demons. Demons have the power to mess with us. They don't want to mess with our technology. They want to mess with us. Uh, if, you know, if if two plus thousand years of, of uh, Christian civilization is to be believed. And uh, I have more important things to do than, than cast skepticism on the wisdom of the ages in that regard. Uh, rather than trying to imagine the best technological, technological arrangements, what we need to do is remember who we are. And if we remember who we are, then the rest will follow, I think. And James, how do people uh, keep up with who you are? Where can they buy your book? How do they buy your book if they are so inclined? Uh, Which well, Eldritch passage yeah, I mean, uh, in, in the East do they have to take? You, if you want to be on the Human Forever mailing list, you can go to humanforever.us. If you want to uh, simply get the book into your hot little hands, the, uh, the paperback for the low price of the equivalent of 30 Fed bucks, <laughs> uh, that's canonic.xyz. Um, and if you'd like one of the NFTs, you can pay me $1 million. Yes. Uh, there's still a few uh, NFTs on the secondary market. You can buy one of those, resell it for you know a, a Google <laughs> Google dollars. Um, and then uh, you know I should say a word about uh, Return, which is the new tech lifestyle publication that uh, I have, uh, that you I've have founded. Full-throatedly refused to spell with a V. Despite this is not <laughs> no this is this is not about the pre-Christian era. Yeah. This is about the era in which we live right now, where still a majority of Americans are Christians, and where people understand that uh, technology and theology are what are set the tempo and the, the pace and the character of of life today, and and determine the course of our politics. Uh, but you know, this isn't like a super intellectual uh, publication. Obviously, it's if you're smart and think about things, this will reward you. Um, it's a tech lifestyle publication. You know, no one wired who cares. You know, there's this huge gap there, and it's not just Trump voters. It's it's m many more millions of people mm -hmm. than that who recognize that there's something rotten in Denmark and recognize that uh, these technologies have eaten the world and that it touches everything. Um, and they want to find each other and uh, coordinate together culturally and economically uh, on, you know, creating quintessentially American institutions in mm -hmm. on a digital footing so that we can survive and thrive in this world that has been forced upon us. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a it's a website, return.life. There's a print quarterly that's coming next month for members only. Uh, and if you want to become a member, uh, you can do so at subscribe.return.life. And I heavily encourage everyone to do so. I just read my first piece since the publication launched in the publication yesterday, uh, right after we taped with Jeremy Carl. Uh, and it's great. It's good stuff. I don't know where else I would read it. There's no one else who would publish this. The answer is nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's just us. Yeah. Look, the last time uh, a publication you edited came across my eyes, we ended up creating this entire organization. Uh, a piece in the American mind was the genesis of American moment. So uh, uh, it is uh, likely to be influential. You seem to have the Midas touch when it comes to these things. Well, I mean, to be quite honest, like there's really no substitute for just like getting kicked around over the course of your life. Yeah. You must have the experience of trying and failing mm -hmm. and being blindsided and having tragedy. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you have to get mm -hmm. your kicked. Yeah. However hard you think your career has been, <laughs> you know, Ms. Mr. Poulos here has uh, has experienced quite a bit. And uh, where can people follow you personally? 
um, uh, on the streets of Los Angeles. No. Uh, so, you know, Twitter uh, at James Polis. Uh, DMs are open. Yeah. Um, I ignore you if you're a freak, um, unless you're the right kind. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what else? I mean, there's the American Mind, of course, AmericanMind.org. Um, that, that has a Twitter. Um, so many social media platforms. People will find them if they if they want if to. They're so inclined. Yeah. James, thank you for stopping by. It's a pleasure. I told you that would be a wild ride, and I think that you would concur. Um, I would highly recommend trying to go purchase a copy of the paperback Human Forever. Go subscribe to Return.Life and pay attention to the American Mind and the Claremont Institute. All three of those are institutions and publications and published works, I guess, that are worth your time. Uh, we wouldn't be where we are today without many of them. Uh, as always, you can follow us at ammoment.org on all social media. You can go to AmericanMoment.org to find out everything we have cooking, and you can uh, rate and review this podcast five stars. It really does help us out. Thank you guys, as always, for listening, and we will see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.